Welcome back, listeners, to the Modern History HSC podcast. I'm your host, Blake Hamilton, and today we've got Michael Adams joining us on the podcast. I discovered him a few weeks ago when trying to find some more resources and some information about Australia during the Depression, um, some resources on Jack Lang and all that sort of stuff, and it's pretty scarce. It's an area that doesn't seem to have a lot of attention but a two-part series that Michael was working on was just absolutely fantastic. And I just had to ask if he would come on the pod and see if he could share some more stories. So how are you going, Michael? Very well. Thanks, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm going really well. Um, so apart from the podcast that you run, Forgotten Australia, um, what other pieces of work are you currently working on at the moment? I've just uh, finished the first draft of a book called The Murder Squad, which is a non-fiction uh, exploration of homicide detectives working in Sydney and New South Wales during the worst years of the Great Depression. So it sort of traces cases from 1929 through to about 1934, sort of culminating with the very famous case of the Pajama Girl down near Albury. Um, so that was really interesting because, you know, some of these stories um, have just never been told since the actual cases happened. Some of these murders, some of them were solved, some of them were unsolved. Some of them were solved in pretty dodgy circumstances because cops were able to sort of, you know, put words into people's mouths. You know, they decided someone was guilty and they'd make the evidence fit the crime. But yeah. I followed one um, one detective in particular, Detective Sergeant Thomas Walter McRae, who was the chief of the hem homicide squad and uh, was credited with solving a lot of these big cases. And they've got, you know, fantastic sort of names along with, you know, the Pajama Girl. You've got the Human Glove Mystery, you know, the Hammer Horror, uh, the Bung and Door Bones. I mean, these were sort of tabloid sensations. And this guy was a good cop, but, you know, at the end of the decade, he also came completely unstuck in one of the biggest sort of sex scandals uh, of, you know, the 20th century that made it into the courts in New South Wales. Yeah, right. So that, that, was, that was a fascinating book um, to research and write, and I'm still sort of, you know, tweaking it. And uh, just last year, I released a book called Hanging Ned Kelly, which is, you know, um, again, my interest is sort of the forgotten characters of Australian history. We all know the story of Ned Kelly. So who was the bloke who hanged him and how did he get this job? So I dug into that, which then led me into the whole history of hang men in Australia and capital punishment. And that was a really eye-popping eye sort of, you know, exploration because, you know, the, the the sort of scenes, you know, hang men being hunted through the streets of Melbourne by huge mobs and, you know, botched executions and all of this sort of stuff. It was just crazy. So, so that book's out now. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I write books and I do the podcast. Fantastic. And I saw on your page that you've done work in television and journalism and stuff in the past as well. Yeah. 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 I worked uh, as a screenwriter for MasterChef um, for tw the t Channel 9 comedy show 20 to 1. Yeah. Um, more recently for the show Parental Guidance, a whole bunch of other sort of programs um, that you may or may not have seen. Oh, Home and Away, I did a couple of episodes of that back in the day. I was also briefly. Um, the host of the movie show on SBS. So, you know, that was when I really realized I had a face for podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Oh, you uh, and me both, mate. That's why we've got the game for the audio oh, medium. Come on, you're a handsome rooster. <laughs> I can see you on the Zoom there. Yeah. Um, I also uh, wrote a bunch of young adult novels and um, middle grade fiction as well, uh, sort of sort of sci-fi action kind of stuff. So I enjoy writing a lot, uh, but I really feel like I've found my calling doing the sort of non-fiction Australian history uh, writing and, and podcasting because it's just endlessly fascinating and it's amazingly unexplored. There's literally no end to the stories and every time I sort of research one, I'll incidentally find two more. It's almost like whack-a-mole, really. Yeah, and I think this comes a little bit more into the first question that I wanted to ask, which is, like, what was the first breadcrumb or into, like, getting into all of this? Was Did somebody say, you know, you're talking about Australian history all the time, maybe you should do a podcast? Like, was it recommended to you? Or did you decide, like this is a good medium for me to tell a story because you're obviously like writing and doing um, like film and stuff before that and television before. So what was the, you know, the jumping off point for like, right, <laughs> we're going to do this first episode and yeah. what was it? Okay. So uh, very briefly, I wrote a bunch of young adult novels called The Last Girl, The Last Shot and The Last Place. That was uh, 2013 to 2015. They were published by Alan and Unwin. Alan and Unwin said, what's your next book going to be? And I had this idea set in the 1930s about a young Australian woman going to Hollywood to try and be an actress uh, and encountering Nazis and getting a bit part in Gone with the Wind and a bit part in The Wizard of Oz, all this sort of stuff. And when I was researching the book, I actually had to find out how you'd get from Sydney to Los Angeles in 1936 and I went to Trove, which is the National Library of Australia's database of historic newspapers, and basically just typed in some random stuff, like, I don't know, Sydney, Los Angeles, Cruise Liner, or something like that. Yeah. The very first thing that popped up was a August 1936 article about an actual Australian teenage actress called Mary Maguire, who was going to Hollywood to become a film star. And she'd already made a couple of movies in Australia and was a bit of a big deal. She was only 17. So I thought, okay, great. Well, you know, my character can be on the ship with this woman and she can be a supporting character. And I started digging into Mary Maguire to, you know, make the character sort of more more realistic. And I became really, really obsessed with Mary Maguire. I found uh, some of her relatives uh, in Australia and overseas. Uh, I mean, she died in 1974 in complete obscurity. Uh, and I spent, you know, f while I was working in TV and stuff, spent the best part of four years researching her story. It, I put the novel aside and I ended up with a book called Australia's Sweetheart. And it was her story. Um, I watched all of her movies, just every single stone that I could pick up and turn over, I did. And in the process of writing that book, I mean, you know, as much as I'd like to have every book be, you know, 500,000 words, you know, you're kind of limited to about 100,000. And so I had to keep setting aside stories that I'd come across. One, for instance, was, you know, she was born in February 1919 in Melbourne, the height of the Spanish flu. And she was, you know, had, had to be born at home because the hospitals were overflowing. Um, now, this is, you know, I'm writing this in, researching this in 2016, 2017. Spanish flu is, you know, pretty much forgotten, not yeah, so much obscure. now. Yeah, uh, You know, she um, 
her parents ran a hotel called the Bull and Mouth Hotel in, in Burke Street in Melbourne. And in 1923, it, it, along with all the other buildings in Melbourne, was you know under siege from this mob because the police had gone on strike for the whole weekend and 100,000 people had just gone on a 48-hour ride through the city, like unbelievable scenes. You know, they had to call in um, ex-soldiers, create a militia to restore order, um, and her family was in the thick of this. So that was another one. You know, it gets sort of a paragraph in the book, but mm. I couldn't actually, you know, go into it in any great detail. Uh, there was another one, you know, she, her family then moved to Brisbane where they ran the Bellevue Hotel and it was a big sort of social hub and uh, they had a lot of dances and some of these dances were organised by Mary with her older sister and a woman called Marjorie Norval. And once Mary had gone to Hollywood, you know, a couple of years later in 1938, Marjorie Norval, who was this, you know, really well-known rising public servant at a time when most women didn't work in those sort of jobs, she disappeared without a trace and her body has never been found. So it's one of Australia's oldest cold cases. So bit by bit, I sort of started uh, finding these stories and being really fascinated by them and I didn't have any outlet. Uh, so I started the podcast. I mean, I was listening to podcasts, in particular two American ones, one called Law, which is L-O-R-E, by a guy called Aaron Mankey, which is about folklore, and another one uh, by, um, uh, sorry, I am having a mental blank. It, the, the podcast is called You Must Remember This. Um, it's by Karina Longworth, and she's actually the partner of the guy who made the Knives Out films. Um she explores classic Hollywood and both of these podcasts, uh, you know, provided me with the inspiration in terms of telling stories, uh, nonfiction, deep dive narratives where it's actually a story as opposed to, well, on this date, this happened, you know, you start with a scene like a movie to get people in. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, you know, uh, the series Breaking Bad, uh, because, you know, if you ever want to tell stories, it's just a wonderful, wonderful, instructive sort of program because, you know, every episode begins with this cold open where you really sometimes have no idea who the person is, even though you've been watching the season, you know, for, you know, five or six episodes, suddenly there's this new character and you're focused on this person. You're like, who is this? How is, what's this got to do with anything? And mm. then the rest of the episode kind of, you know, loops it in or comes back to it. So that's what I do. I, you know, often, most often start the story episodes in the middle or with a scene or an image that I find really interesting, which I hope grabs people's attention. And then we'll go back and find out how this person got to this place. And what I love to do is actually focus on, you know, fairly obscure characters. I mean, you know, I'd say one in a thousand Australians could tell you who Mary Maguire was or Marjorie Norval. Mm. And, but through them and their actual experiences, you can also then get an insight into the times they lived in and how those times affected their lives directly and sort of sometimes indirectly. Um, you know, so the very first episode I did in November of 2018 was called Sister Annie, Sydney and the Spanish Flu. Uh, it was 45 minutes long. It was about a, a young nurse named Sister Annie who volunteered to look after infected soldiers at the quarantine station in October of twenty October of nineteen eighteen, and this was before Spanish flu got out of quarantine in Melbourne and you know killed fifteen thousand people in Australia. So it was a, a way of looking at her sacrifice because she caught it and she died. Yeah. Um, 
and also to explore how people in Australia reacted to this you know, pandemic. And at the end of the podcast, I sort of said, you know, everybody agrees, uh, you know, epidemiologists agree, something like this will happen again. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And, you know, a year, just over a year later, people were then emailing me saying, are you psychic, dude? And I'm like, yeah, how did you, how did you pick this up? <laughs> not at all, not at all. Yeah. I, you know, I was only saying what other people had already said, and I guess to some extent what was common sense. But, you know, in that instance, the, and I, I re-released um, the episode at the time and, you know, the, the parallels between how the governments reacted then and how they reacted to COVID were uncanny, you know, and then things like, you know, contact tracing and quarantine and all of this sort of stuff mm. happened then. Um, and then I, you know, just, then I did other episodes about the bubonic plague 20 years earlier in Sydney and I found that the lessons they'd learned in the bubonic plague about containment had then been forgotten by the time Spanish flu came around. So, you know, if we do have another pandemic in 20 years from now, there's no guarantee we're all going to remember COVID because, you know, history shows that people have, you know, while we remember wars, we tend not to remember pandemics for whatever reason. Yeah, we like block them off, block them off and put up the blinders. Uh, yeah. Just like on, on that note, I was... Also, for like a separate episode that I did with another mate, like ages and ages and ages ago, I was looking through a similar site to Trove. I think it was like National Newspaper Archives. And yeah, like seeing the reports of New South Wales, you know, locking down borders or ads for like a year or so on into the Spanish flu, um, people prescribing like aspirin or yeah, and <laughs> people like locking themselves inside their houses it was totally uncanny that like we Crazy. that we that they had this whole i guess maybe not a rule book but at least a rough guide of what it was going to be like and every day it was just like oh what's going to happen what's going to happen it's like might as well have a look back absolutely like you know one thing that kills me is uh the sydney sun in the start of april 1919 um the headline was sydney breathes again so by that stage, like 500 people had died in Victoria, something like 13 had died in New South Wales, and the cases had dropped right down to like, you know, maybe a dozen a day. So the New South Wales government said, okay, cool, we're good, masks off everybody. And the Sydney Sun, that was the headline, Sydney breathes again, and it actually made fun of people who were still wearing masks on public transport and said, yeah. you know, people were being shamed by others, other passengers into taking them off. And what do you reckon happened? You know, within a week, cases were back up to 100 a week. A week after that, 100 a day. The week after that, you know, 200 a day. And a week after that, 120 people a day were dying. Um, it was just a complete own goal. So when, you know, pandemic, during the COVID pandemic after the first wave, when I saw like, okay, let's all, you know, yeah, hey, we're good now. I was like, dudes, this is not the way to go. This didn't work out so well last time. No. And, you know, our second wave was very similar, you know, and it coincided with winter and same as it had in 1919. It was just, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme, as Absolutely. Mark Twain said. Yeah, <laughs> it is crazy. It is totally crazy that we get like, when you do look back, you get these little sneak peeks. Yeah. Um, if we want to move into like a little bit forward into the depression, because these interwar periods is what I want you to ask, really want to ask you about and the stories. Yeah. Um, 
I was going to say in general, but what are some stories you could perhaps share with the listener about what it was like for families or individuals during these depression years? You started off by saying that like, you're writing a book at the moment about, um, about crime cases that are going on. So was yep. crime rampant in New South Wales during the depression? Like, Was there a noticeable increase of crime and desperation as a result? would you say, or? I, I, I can't answer that conclusively. I would say not really. Yeah. Uh, certainly like, well, the year that I've sort of focused on the most in the, in the book uh, is 1932, which coincides with the worst of the depression. I think, you know, the unemployment rate reached around about 30, 32%, you know, mm. around about April, May, of 1932, and that coincided with these incredibly gruesome murders in in Sydney, and there was a bunch of them, and the actual newspapers called it the murder wave, and they actually wondered, you know, what 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 was causing it? Was it you know sunspot activity? Um, one of the leading theories was that it was you know uh, a reaction to the depression that these and some of these crimes were not motivated by robbery or the amount of violence used was completely, you know, disproportionate to any gain. Um, and, yeah, the, the sort of, you know, one of the theories was, well, one of the questions was, you know, we expected there'd be an increase in robbery and desperation because people were doing it so tough, but what's causing these murders? And, you know, there was no real answer and there was also no real significant jump in the number of murders year on year. If you look at the annual reports from the police, they kind of averaged around about 30 to 35 a year. Yeah. And it, it did tick up a little bit, but not substantially. The actual nature of the crimes was far more brutal than in other years. And I think that could have, it could have been a reaction to the worsening times. It could have just been a coincidence. Uh, it could have actually been also a copycat kind of thing. I, I, I don't really have the answers to that. Yeah. Um, but you know the other thing is, you what you in in terms of what you do see is, and it is something that I don't think is in the popular memory so much is the absolute desperation of people who killed themselves. Um, now you know we all have that image of you know the Wall Street banker taking a high dive on you know black in October of nineteen twenty nine because his savings are gone. There seemed to be a, an uptick in again it's anecdotal an uptick in suicides of desperation. And my uh, focus in this book is only New South Wales, so it doesn't necessarily represent all of Australia. But, you know, um, in numerous cases, there's, you know, people found who've poisoned themselves and they've left notes in their pockets saying, you know, I've been out of work, uh, I can't face the, the shame of going on the dole, or I was injured at work and I, you know, um, my my money's run out, my compensation's run out, and this is the end for me. And, you know, of course, the other great, you know, triumph in March of 1932 was the opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which is, you know, this incredible symbol of hope and prosperity and progress at the same time that, you know, the state is sinking deeper and deeper into depression. Yeah. And it, gave, it also gave people a new way to commit suicide. Um, oh, wow. On the 24th of April in... 1932 the first person jumped that we know of at least and the next day and anzac day another person jumped and it became so frequent that they then decided they had to put up the fence which is there now 
there wasn't a fence to begin with and it was going to take them a long time to do it. So they had cops permanently patrolling, five constables patrolling for the next uh, around about 18 months. Uh, even so, 46 people jumped to their deaths in that period. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, again, it's only anecdotal, it's tip of the iceberg sort of stuff, but it does show that there was, you know, this immense desperation amongst the sort of middle, some middle and working class people. Um, and, you know, these stories made the newspapers, uh, you know, they especially made the news and in, in much greater detail because, you know, we don't report suicides these days simply for the reason of copycats. Um, yeah, getting inspired. And, and, Exactly. And, you know, I would have to say that some of these suicides were probably, you know, well, not to lessen the people's despair, but copycats, you know, okay, that person did it. I'm going to do the same thing. I mean, they would actually print these suicide notes and some of them are hugely lengthy um, in the papers. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and it didn't only uh, hit the working class. I mean, there was a guy who, his name was Robert Beardsmore, who I did a you know, a four-hour podcast about he was the public servant who... Um, oh, yeah, I listened to that one. Yep. Yeah, who who triggered the sacking of Jack Lang. And I was trying to work out what sort of guy he was and whether he was, you know, a conservative, whether he was aligned with the New Guard. And while there's no conclusive evidence he was a New Guardsman, uh, he was certainly very conservative and had lots of conservative sort of allegiances. Um you know, he was, you know, a, a leading public servant for 50 years. He was, you know, very high up in the government, um, very, you know, had lots of influential friends. His brother, his older brother, stabbed himself to death um, in, I think it was 1932. Yeah, it was 1932. Or maybe it was 1931. Anyway, 31 or 32, stabbed himself to death in his kitchen. Um, you know, his son found him bleeding out and had to take him to the hospital and he did this because his investments had gone bad. Um, you know, he had a bunch of houses that he was renting out and there was a problem with that. And he was, you know, out of work for a couple of months and despairing. And yeah, that's, and he, he, he died in hospital. Um, and Robert Beardsmore, as far as I can tell, did not actually go to the funeral. He attended a, a political event instead. Yeah. Maybe not a lot of sympathy for his older brother. Uh, but, you know, it certainly also affected people in the middle class. Um and anyone studying this period, I would just recommend that you, you know, go to Trove, uh, use the advanced search function, uh, look at newspapers in 1932. Uh, you know, in particular, you know, while the Sydney Morning Herald is excellent for just the facts, ma'am, um, you really get a better sense of things, I think, um, as long as you cross compare them. Um, don't rely on one from, you know, the Sun, the Daily Mirror, oh, sorry, the Daily Telegraph. Mm. Um, truth even like, you know, truth can be scurrilous and scandalous. And sometimes the stories are, you know, exaggerated, but it can also, you know, in terms of court cases, they often, you know, over thousands of words re repeat the court cases like a transcription verbatim. Um, Smith's Weekly, which was the diggers paper, which was, you know, very, very sort of pro ex soldier. And then there's Labor Daily, which was controlled by Jack Lang and the Labor Party. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, presenting the left side of things. You know, you, your son and your Daily Telegraph are unfailingly or almost unfailingly presenting the conservative side of things. Uh, Labor Daily, unfailingly the left side of things. And then other communist newspapers like the Tribune and the Australian Worker 
they then present the far left side of things, you know. So for them, Jack Lang wasn't any sort of savior. He was just a capitalist tool. Um, and often, you know, if you've got the time, you can look, select any particular story and download or read the articles from all of these papers and the Sydney Morning Herald, of course, mm. and get a cross-comparative kind of view of any given incident. And, you know, you'll find places where they overlap, places where they diverge, uh, places where, you know, their opinions come through very strongly. But it does give you a real sense of what people were thinking at the time and of course, what they were thinking depended on who they were, um, and it's you know it's quite it's quite fascinating, uh, and it, to me, it really brings it alive. I think you know, while information is you know the most important part of studying history, I think imagination is also uh, something that you need to utilize as much as possible, not to make things up, but just to imagine what it was like, who these people were, what it meant to them, and to always remember that they were people like you or I with our sort of, you know, good points and bad points and, uh, you know, strengths and weaknesses, misconceptions, all the rest of it. Mm. Um, and whatever they experienced, you know, they didn't just experience it as names on a page or black and white photos in a newspaper. They experienced it as living, breathing, three-dimensional colour, you know, people in colour. Um, and I think if you remember that, then it makes history just far more exciting, uh, illuminating and even entertaining in terms of, you know, these are stories. Yeah, of like actual actual people. Movies for your mind, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, I being, you know, a bit older, you know, I grew up uh, as a kid loving Star Wars and, you know, you instantly think, wow, futuristic science fiction. And, of course, it's not futuristic at all. The very first line is a long time ago. You know, it's a history story, you know, obviously a fictional history story, but, you know, these Australian stories from a long time ago can be as exciting as anything we can imagine. And, you know, while Gallipoli and Kokoda get, you know, the sort of the headlines of history, um, the interwar period in Australia is just fascinating because, you know, there were, you know, battle lines were drawn and, you know, people were fighting on the streets. People were killed. Um, can I just ask you, suffered. can mm. I just ask you specifically, because this is something that um, I find in my class and I'm sure it's going to be the same across a couple of other classes, just where you were saying people are drawing battle lines and allegiances. Could you just give us in your mind where these lines are drawn and who the leaders are? So, in my teaching of it, you've got you got Jack Lang is an interesting figure, but then the kids will say, "Well, is he a communist?" Because when they're saying like he's on the left, and it's like, "Well, like yes, he's representing the Labor Party, but you know he'll make the non-Labor Communist Party later on." So it's a little bit tricky. And then you got Eric Campbell and Francis De Groot and then where does the federal government stand? So yeah. could you just maybe try to set out who are the different factions, who are the different sides? Um, just like okay. what you did, just like what you did with the papers. And you said, you know, yeah. this paper has influences yeah. from here because I think that might crystallize a little bit more for people who are doing this for the first time. I, I can, I can certainly try. It's yeah. it is very complicated. Like doing that, you know, three-part podcast about, you know, the sacking of Jack Lang, I really had to unpick a lot of stuff. And it's, you know, 
it's yeah, you know, it, it could have been ten times the length because it's really involved, and it's not necessarily black or black and white. I mean, Jack Lang was not a communist. He was not even really well. He was a, a socialist leaning, but he was actually actively kind of undermined by communists um, in the Labor Party and by socialization units in the party who didn't think he was to the left enough. So he was really wedged. I mean, you know, he had immense popular support. He won in 1930 in a landslide. But, you know, the mainstream, well, the conservatives um, and their backers were dead set against him. But then to the left of him, he had the communists uh, and the socialists or sort of further left socialists also against him. So he was really walking a, a very tricky line, you know, in trying to um, stand up for the working class. You know, he would anger the right by his, you know, uh, uh, pronouncements and policies while the left was saying he wasn't going far enough. So that was you know, that was tricky. Um so he had a, a antagonists in the former premier Stanley Bavin, who was um, sorry, I think it might be Thomas Bavin. Let me just be clear on that. Yeah, I, no, I, I get I get mixed up sometimes as well. I think it's Thomas Bavin and Stanley Bruce. So um, Bavin had been um, Thomas Bavin. Sorry, had been um, the premier that. Lang ousted, and then Lang was sacked and ousted, and in came Bertram Stevens. Bertram Stevens was more moderate. Bavin had, you know, uh, a, a much harder line um, against Lang and against the sort of working class. Um, his two IC, his attack dog, was a guy called Reginald Weaver, who was virulently anti-labor, uh, anti-union, and a supporter of the New Guard. Uh, the New Guard were quasi-fascists, I think is what's now sort of the way to describe them. I, I think the only reason they didn't become fully fascist was because they stopped being influential after Lang was removed. Um, so they were advocating for... So the, the situation was um, Thomas Bavin had been in government. Um, he was backing the federal government's uh, plan to prioritise loan repayments to England over yep. social services. The Premier's plan, yeah. The Premier's plan. Well, it, be, before that, the Premier's plan came after after Bavin was ousted. Oh, okay, um, that's interesting. But, yep. but, but Bavin was then in opposition, so he was backing it. Lang was sort of kind of there, kind of against it. He kind of wavered to some extent. Um, and then as the depression got worse and his enemies lined up against him, he moved further left and um, had the Lang plan, which basically repudiated loan repayments to England and wanted to prioritise spending money to on public works and on welfare to alleviate the suffering in New South Wales of working class people. Um, of course, you know, you've got to remember that this was seen as a shameful thing that australia would you know yeah i was just about it, to make that point it's just yeah, that he wants on to, its loans yeah he wants to well even just the uh if he's increasing the welfare and it's so shameful for people to get, even go on the susso it's uh 
is there oh like no no dem- it, it, is there a demand for it or is- no, no there's absolutely a demand for it. when i say shameful it's considered a shameful thing to not pay what you owe to mother england when you owe it yeah, um, yeah. That, that's what I meant by the shameful side of things. I mean, and then at a federal level, you know, you've got the Conservative Prime Minister, Stanley Bruce, who's then beaten by Scullin. Scullin actually comes to power promising to, you know, one of the major campaign promises is that he will um, end the lockout that's seen, you know, miners in the Hunter Valley coal fields um, being put out of work for, you know, close to well by then about eight months because they refused to take a pay cut and worse working conditions which is outside the federal award to prop up the coal owners profits so that the coal owners have locked them out they're no longer getting any sort of money and the the coal owners want to bring in volunteer workers aka scabs and um scullin wins for labor federally saying we're going to back the workers and we're going to prosecute the coal owners. Hmm. And yeah, he, he's elected and literally a week later, Wall Street crashes and all of a sudden the, the game has changed and he's walking this back now to some extent saying, well, we need to find a sort of, you know, uh, conciliation between the miners, the coal owners um, and the federal and state governments uh, Bavin, the New South Wales Premier, is going, no, 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 we do not need to do that at all. We will bring in scab workers. The miners uh, rally picket outside of Rothbury in mid-December. There's like 5,000 of them. And Bavin and his 2IC Reginald Weaver have sent up the cops and they open fire on the crowd. They fire 122 bullets. They kill one miner, seriously wound a couple more. One of them will later, much later, die of his injuries. And there's maybe 20 others wounded. It's, you know, thought of as the shot that was heard around Australia. Um, And then for six months after that, there are police basher squads going into the coal fields and like just arbitrarily beating the hell out of unionists um, who are already doing it super tough because, you know, they haven't had any work for over a year now. They, you know, they're also denied Susso. They're denied their dole rations because they're handed out by the police in yep. many instances. So, you know, this is sort of a battlefield in New South Wales at the start of the the worst economic uh, downturn in history or in modern history, at least. And, um, you know, it's it's a little part of Australian history that's really not very well known. Um, you know, at the, you know, around about the same time, timber workers in, in Sydney are also out and are also being, you know, subjected to bashings by the police and frame-ups and all the rest of it. And the, the sort of hard-charging lead cop is Billy Mackay. And Billy Mackay uh, will then, once Lang is elected, turn on a dime and be, you know, Lang is, you know, has been outraged by, you know, the events at Rothbury and events with the timber workers and the fact that Scullin has, you know, no longer supported Rothbury, et cetera, the, the miners at Rothbury. Um and then when Lang's elected, Mackay turns on a dime and becomes his attack dog. So he yeah. is then, you know, later used against the new guard and sort of, you know, the quasi-fascists gathering power. So it's just this, you know, ever-shifting bunches of alliances. Um, you know, meanwhile, federally, Scullin's um, response to the Depression um, angers, you know, a Labor man, 
Joe Lyons, who breaks away from the party, and Scullin will be, you know, beaten at the election by, you know, uh, Lyons, who will then be the Conservative Prime Minister of United Australia Party, which is the forerunner of the Liberal Party. So it really is this, you know, constantly sort of shifting battleground, both politically, you know, in Canberra and in Macquarie Street, but also literally on the streets, you know, in 1931, um, the communists um, backed anti-eviction protests whereby in Sydney they would, you know, working class families were going to be kicked out of their homes by landlords and, you know, the um, anti-eviction movement would move in, barricade these places and say they're not going anywhere and, you know, use these sort of sieges as a soapbox and Mackay's cops went in and, you know, in Union Street in, in Newtown, they opened fire and, you know, they shot a couple of protesters and there was, you know, they, these guys were wounded, didn't die, uh, you know, and the activists are bashing the cops and the cops are bashing the unionists and, you know, then it becomes a court case and there's massive, you know, protests by communists outside of the courts and it's just this, you know, tumultuous sort of time uh, and it, it's, you know, exciting to read about because, you know, these personalities pop up, you know, throughout all of the, you know, these key personalities, whether police, unionists, uh, conservatives, fascists, whatever, pop up at all these various key moments. You know, and then you've got things like, you know, the the group slashing the ribbon of the Harbour Bridge as being, you know, the symbol of the new guard in, in New South Wales at the time. Mm. But there was much, much, much more beside that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's all really, really interesting. And the, the one thing that's like coming to my mind is that I really want to get your take on the whole Australia brink of civil war thing. So you're talking about these different factions that are fighting each other. Yep. You've got the cops, you've got the unionists, you've got the fascists, you've got the communists, you've got Jack Lang being wedged, you've got lines forming a new party and all this chaos going on. When you see, say, like a like a thumbnail that's talking about this period of time, I often thought, like, is that clickbaity to say it that way? Or from your research, do you think that's completely accurate? Do you think that Australia was really potentially on the brink of, you know, maybe not civil war, but the civil strife and the civil crisis, like, really ramping up and there really being a serious split? Um, the answer is yes at the time civil war was used widely both across the board in terms of um, politically um, by Jack Lang, by his opponents, by the conservative press, by the leftist press. Uh, there was a fear that there was going to be civil war, yes. Now, because there was a fear that there was going to be civil war doesn't necessarily mean that civil war was going to happen. It's mm. like, you know, cut to 10 years later, there was a great fear the Japanese were going to invade. It's highly debatable whether the Japanese actually ever intended to invade all of Australia. Maybe they were going to invade northern Australia, parts of northern Australia, to deny those areas being used as a base. But they, there was never any evidence they were going to invade Sydney. But people certainly feared that they would. So there was a, and in 1932, there was a fear that these mounting tensions would result in civil war. 
Um, certainly Jack Lang said that he didn't fight his dismissal because if he had, there was the prospect of Commonwealth Commonwealth soldiers and state police fighting it out on the streets of Sydney. Now, that could be self-serving in terms of Jack Lang wanting to justify why he didn't, or wanting to explain nobly why he didn't fight, continue fighting. Um, but, you know, the, the what triggered Lang's um, sacking, his dismissal, was, yeah, a, a bureaucratic at least uh, face-off with the federal government. The federal government was ordering that New South Wales, all monies had to be paid into the Commonwealth Bank or handed over to the feds. And Lang had literally removed cash from the banks and put it into the treasury in cash uh, and was refusing to comply. And he was directing his public servants to take all monies in cash or in checks for cash and deposit them in the state treasury. So, there was a, you know, there were the state and federal governments were at loggerheads, and had Lang continued, you know, if Sir when Sir Philip Game um, sacked him, if he'd refused to go, I mean, he, yeah, who knows what would have happened? Yeah, I think the the new guards' reason for being was to take power or take control, not power, but take control, which I guess is also taking power if they decided that the government could not maintain order. So their pronouncements in sort of, you know, late 1931 into 1932 were that Lang was a communist, the public service was riddled with communists, uh, it was all terrible, they couldn't, you know, maintain all, you know, that it looked like they couldn't maintain order, they were tra traitors to Australia, Etc. 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 All communists needed to be deported. All socialists need to be deported. Etc. 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 And you know, if it comes to it, we will take control of law and order, the distribution of food, the maintenance of industry, etc. Because the cops can't do it. Um, and you know, the the new guard boasted they had fifty. Sorry, boasted they had about a hundred thousand members. Uh, Modern estimates maybe say maybe 50,000, but it was still a hell of a lot. And, you know, I yeah. think the police force at that point was about 6,000 strong across the entire of the state. So they certainly had more numbers, whether these men were actually, you know, able to follow through on what they'd pledged to do or not uh, is a, a different story. But they certainly had the numbers. And, you know, if Lang had, you know, stuck around or tried to stick around, that could have triggered the new guard into, you know, taking some action. I mean, they supposedly had plans to, had already planned to uh, kidnap Lang, to s kidnap and other members of his cabinet and hold them at Old Berrimah Jail while they took over power stations and so forth. These plans were discovered by, in raids orchestrated by Billy Mackay um, and his cops, the conservatives, including Reginald Weaver and and Eric Campbell, claimed that you know these this so-called evidence had been planted, and there are sort of arguments to suggest that you know if the evidence itself hadn't been planted, that you know the new guard was a bit stitched up by agents provocateurs, uh, agent provocateurs, sorry, who you know infiltrators that Mackay had used. He'd certainly used infiltrators against the miners a couple of years before on Roth at Rothbury. So, you know, that was his sort of form. So it was this, you know, like I say, it's this really exciting sort of period 
where, you know, in alternate histories, who knows what would have happened? I mean, you know, people were to some extent looking to Germany where, you know, communists, socialists, anarchists, Nazis, et cetera, were clashing on the streets and people were being killed. And we all know how that turned out. Um, I doubt that it would have got to that that stage, but it certainly could have, you know, it, it could have ended up with, you know, bloody clashes on the streets of Sydney in the sort of manner of, you know, larger scale versions perhaps of Rothbury or the Battle of Union Street where, you know, new guardsmen were, you know, attacking communist or unionist protesters and and the police were there and who knows yeah it's it's an interesting sort of it's an interesting what if yeah and one that i I think a lot of australians if you ask them they would not even have a clue yeah it was the state of play yeah well i mean if you again if you go to trove and just type in civil war you know uh, and limit your um searches to 1932 in new south wales uh, maybe jump, you know, chuck in Lang as a as an extra term. You'll see tons of editorials across the the media spectrum worrying that this is a possibility. So yeah. maybe. Um, on the flip side to that, is there anything that you found in your research or anything that you could anecdotally suggest um, prevented the the new guard and the extreme communist groups from gaining more traction because I, I know that they didn't get a lot of um, political or parliament representation. I think it might've only been like a few seats here or there on either side. Was there other things that were going on or is it just a very Australian thing to just not get involved <laughs> in extreme <laughs> politics that we I, just can't be bothered? I, <laughs> we I just get on with it. <laughs> I reckon that is very true uh, where I think we're a fairly moderate people by and large uh so the new guard never actually fielded political candidates uh eric campbell made it a point of saying that it wasn't a political party in the sense that it was never going to actually have anyone stand for election i mean and this is kind of you know a ruse of uh extremists who want to you know maybe rule by you know decree as dictators i mean like you know Eric Campbell's idea was that, you know, New South Wales would be ruled by a 10-man committee um, that would consult with Parliament sort of, you know, once every couple of weeks. And, you know, he would have been at the top of that that food chain. So he didn't want to stand for Parliament. But, you know, if the breakdown in law and order, et cetera, that he predicted was going to happen, happened, then, you know, he probably would have liked to see himself as as the, the boss cocky of New South Wales. But they never actually fielded political candidates the um, communists, they were very vocal and they did have, you know, supporters in the union movement, but they were also quite small in number. Um, you know, you'll see reports of communists. I mean, when those Union Street um, anti-evictionists went to trial in um, Sydney, there was a thousand or so communists supporting them outside in these rallies. The evictionists, anti-evictionists, by the way, were acquitted because they were charged with riot and riot as the lawyer Clive Evett argued was something that happened in public. These guys had all been supposedly rioting in a private house as they were getting their heads beaten in by the cops. So they actually, <laughs> they actually won or they, yep. got, they, they, they were acquitted, but you know, you'll see, um, you know, gatherings at the town hall where Eric Campbell and his new guard cronies are speaking where there's, you know, 5,000 people. And that's a pretty big turnout. You know, Eric Campbell up there, 
taking or give you know pledging the oath as he gives a very suspicious looking right hand raised in the air salute that 5,000 of his closest friends are also imitating, you know, and the idea was that this was just, you know, a, a loyalty oath. You'd look at that picture today. It's on the front page, I think, of the Daily Telegraph in about April 1932, and you'd think it was a, something from a Nazi rally. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, immediately and, get drawn yeah, into that. Yeah, and, and then, you know, a year or so later, they were actually using that Nazi-style salute as a fascist sort of greeting. Um, with regards to the new guard, I mean, the Lang had ordered Mackay, uh, the police uh, inspector Mackay, to, quote, sort out those new guard bastards, supposedly, according to Gerald Stone, who wrote a book called 1932. Um, he certainly, Mackay was certainly on the case. And he, as I said, you know, um, what what happened was the former um, communist Jock Garden, who had been sort of a critic of Lang's, and then was brought back inside the tent uh, as a union leader and as a supporter of Lang, was bashed in his in his home, and there were eight men, and one of them was caught, and he then dobbed in his seven cronies. He was caught by Garden and his and his sons handed over to the cops. And this guy was a new guardsman and said that he and seven other new guardsmen had done this and they were part of a inner circle called the Fascist Legion. And they oh, yeah. had, you know, they were issued with Ku Klux Klan style hoods, et cetera, et cetera. And this then triggered the raid of the new guards headquarters where all of these plans were supposedly found or a coup d'etat, the kidnapping of Lang, so forth. Um, now there's, a strong suggestion, and it was certainly said at the time by people like Reginald Weaver and Eric Campbell, that the guy who was caught was actually one of Mackay's infiltrators. So he'd actually put up the rest of these guys to do this. The whole thing had been kind of a put-up job to justify a clampdown on the new guard. Oh, okay. whether, that, whether that was true or not, I don't, I don't know. It's he like you know when they appealed. Their sentences, they were each sentenced, these eight guys were each sentenced to three months. Uh, when they appealed, all of their sentences were upheld, except for this one guy's whose sentence was reduced to one month. And there's also evidence he was being paid by the police as well. So it's, you know, this kind of murky territory where, you know, um, it could have been a, a conspiracy by Mackay without Lang's knowledge, apparently, to frame the new guard and make them look like idiots and also dangerous idiots and it pretty much works i mean you know these pictures of these you know dudes in this hood were in the papers um then there was the raid and the you know release of these documents that you know prove that the new guard was you know planning to overthrow the government which was you know duly elected by the voters um Mackay wanted a royal commission um into the new guard lang was all for it but you know we're talking a week later, Lang was sacked. So the New Guard's number one enemy, their number one reason for existing, had was no longer in power. So after that, their actual influence became negligible. I mean, they still existed. They still had their rallies. Uh, they still talked up sort of, you know, quasi-fascist sort of ideals and so forth. But their number one enemy was out of power. So when uh, 
Bertram Stevens took over when it went like you know Bertram Stevens became the caretaker premier of New South Wales until the election uh, in June. In at the election, Lang was trounced, uh, so he was out, and he'd never be premier again. Bertram Stevens would be premier for the rest of the decade, pretty much, and um, he wouldn't go through with a royal commission, even though Mackay still was advocating for it. And, you know, my suspicion is that a royal commission, an investigation into the new guard would have revealed the level of support it had in upper conservative circles, um, probably including members of the new government, certainly people like Reginald Weaver. It would have been uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of people in, on the conservative side of things to, to have their links to the new guard exposed. Uh, yeah, as particularly as they'd been, you know, shown to be these, you know, hood-wearing, coup-loving cranks so that's, I think, why that they were headed off as a political force, um, and sort of the you know repudiation of Lang by the voters put you know the communists further um, on the outs. I mean, you know, if the people didn't want Lang, they certainly didn't want communism. So the middle ground became uh, Bertram Stevens's government. Of course, you know, as from the second half of 1932 onwards, the depression, while still terrible, started to ease, and Bertram Stevens. Uh, was a more moderate um, leader of the conservative forces. And he, for for instance, you know, kicked Reginald Weaver to the curb um, a little bit later. You know, he's, he's, I think he was just too abrasive, too extreme. So, yeah, I guess, like you say, we're a fairly moderate sort of people. And, you know, while you know, working class people probably had no love for Bertram Stevens and his government, they preferred that than, you know, communism or you know fascism yeah and like i've also heard like people suggest and i don't know how much weight to put into it because i'm still just trying to get you know a bit of a heat map for myself um that figures like say don bradman who's getting 100 every single game or or whatnot at this period of time and you've got um horses like farlap is yep. the australian like middle ground finding hope in icons like the ones I've just suggest suggested instead of maybe, you know, trying to attach themselves. Like you've given a really good case as to why the new guard fell out of favor because they were shown for what they really were. Um, but but, in those but also because they no longer had a, a, their prime reason to exist. You know, if Lang had have yeah. won the election in June of 1932, the new guard would have existed and would have would have continued to have a reason to exist. Yeah, and would have become stronger. But you know, Bertram Stevens winning, they were supporters of Bertram Stevens and conservative government, so they couldn't be protesting against the people they were aligned with. So yeah, they had less of a reason to exist anymore. Was there any things like other than the two that I've kind of just suggested, were there any policies or any actions from either the federal or the Lang government that you think maybe through your research that you're like, that could have made the difference? Like that kept a lot of people out of desperation or that stopped it tipping over the edge or yeah, anything like that. I haven't done a lot on that, I have to admit. Um, I mean, I think um, there were more public works done. Uh, I, I live in Katoomba in the Blue Mountains, and a lot of the big walking tracks here, like, you know, down into the valley were public works from the time. 
um, you'll see things like, you know, up in Katoomba, we've got, you know, uh, Kingsford Smith Park and Burt Hinkler Park, which were both built in the mid-1930s as part of, you know, public works programs. So I think that helped. I mean, the obviously just the international economy starting to recover, put more people back into work. Um, also, you know, the fact that uh, in the early, late 1920s and the early 1930s, when wages were cut, like, you know, across the board, you know, people took big pay cuts and also had their conditions uh, worsened, like, you know, the 44-hour week, which had been one, was uh, reversed, so people were working 48 hours a week again for less money. You know, once Lang was gone, once, you know, uh, uh, Lyons and federally had a stable federal government, there was, you know, less in the way of strikes, less in the way of agitation. People just had to sort of suck it up pretty much. You know, they would be working for less money until wages were again restored, which they would be gradually sort of, you know, I think by about 1937, public service wages started to get back to where they'd been before 1932. Uh, So I think there was just more moderation uh, and also, you know, rearmament. Uh, obviously it happened in Germany, but it also happened in the allied nations as well. So, you know, while our defense spending wasn't huge, it started to increase and that actually put more people back into work and also stimulated the economy and so on. So, yeah, I think those, it was, I, I guess it was a combination of policies, but also just sort of, you know, economic improvement that, Brought eventually brought relief. Yeah, you know, things like thing you know icons like Farlap and Don Bradman were great for you know distractions, but they also it's interesting because they also were oppositional in the sense that we all loved Farlap, and then we also all hated the Americans for murdering him, <laughs> even though they, they didn't. But you know that was the that was the feeling among. A lot of people, and it was, certainly was floated as a theory in April 1932 that you know he'd been poisoned because he was too good. And then, of course, you know that same year we've got you know Don Bradman and his you know cricketers being subjected to the villainous body line by the English. So you know again, yeah. as much as we had uh, heroes to support, we also had villains to boo. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating time. I mean, like you know that's what I love about this interwar period, and particularly the early 30s, is you've got all this tumult. But you've also got, you know, Farlap and you've got Don Bradman and you've got the birth of the ABC, the opening of the bridge, you know, all of these things sort of all happening at the same time. The birth of the Australian talkies and, you know, the rise of the talkies in general in Australia is another thing that sort of fascinates me. You know, at this time, um, you know, politicians were making their first ever talkie speeches in newsreels addressing the public directly, like, you know, Bertram Stevens, after he won the election, you know, directly spoke to the Australian people saying, you know, paraphrasing, but, you know, our nightmare's over, Lang's gone, let's get on with things. Um, you know, this is something that, you know, Australians hadn't seen before, so, or they'd seen it, but they hadn't heard it. So, you know, just a, a really interesting sort of, uh, interesting sort of period. Radio, I think... Just looking at the time, we might move into our lightning round. So I've got three questions that I wanted to ask you. They're not all related to the topic that we're looking yeah. at. 
So my first question is, in terms of Australian prime ministers, which one do you look back, and I'll put the most important Australian prime minister in why, but there's a bit of flexibility. You might not think one was more important. You might admire one more or think one particularly fascinating or you want to highlight one. So which one have you chosen? I have chosen, I have to say Hawke Keating, um, not because of admiration. And I say Hawke Keating because there's an overlap because on one hand, they brought business and the unions together and stopped the, through the accord, reduced, greatly reduced the number of strikes and industrial agitation that had been a, a hallmark of 20th century Australia. And they also introduced the era of globalization and privatization, where a curtain in the 40s had turned Australia from you know Britain focus to America focus, Hawke Keating turned Australia from well to a global focus, and for better or worse, uh, that's the world we now live in. It's a it's a less sexy answer than Gough Whitlam or Curtin, but in terms of how it affects us, I think it's probably the most significant. I mean, obviously, each of these prime ministers and their decisions builds on what's come before, but you know. Those two two policies were pretty radical, and you know they also they made labor into a more of a centrist sort of party. You know things like you know a lot of the things that Whitlam had, or some of the things that Whitlam had, you know, had done, like free education, tertiary education, were moder modified with you know the hex system and that sort of stuff. User pays, so it sort of you know made us made Australia into more of a free market globalized economy again for better or and for worse yeah oh that's a really interesting answer because i think there's a like just looking at the demographics of the people who listen to this um well especially the kids for example or even like people my age in like in their early 30s you don't remember a time of australia where big strikes were happening a lot of the time like I know that I'm part of a teachers union and when we go to a couple of like the rallies that we did like last year, the older teachers, they've got all these stories yeah. about, you know, this is what we were doing, marching in Macquarie Street. And they just talk about it just being a lot more of like a chaotic time. And that probably doesn't even compare to the stuff that we were just talking about from the 1930s. Like yeah. these, we're trying to be the working man's paradise, but we're not trying to go so far that we don't become a, I don't know, a a really well-off, a trying to copy the Americans' capitalist sort of society. So I do agree with your answer. I think that's a really good choice. Thanks, man. Cheers. Yeah, look, I, I am old enough to remember when there were a lot more strikes. I mean, you know, the uh, trucky strikes, beer strikes, brewery strikes, all sorts of strikes. Um, and yeah, we don't see them so much anymore. And you know, striking is also now kind of a dirty word in a lot of a lot of ways, where yeah. you know, it used to be seen as a right and you know as a um, legitimate defence of the workers against the bosses and the governments. Um, these days, it's it's not so much. Absolutely. Um, second question: Can you highlight 
one or maybe two, if you want to, Australians who you've done through your have you been doing the podcast for a few years? Is it fair to say years of doing the podcast? Four years now. Yeah. Four years. Mm. One or two people that you wish more people knew about, and you can highlight it here for the audience. Um, well, I would say, so harking back to my writing of that book, Australia's Sweetheart, when I was just finishing it, um, I'm adopted. So when I had sort of done four years of research on this book, I was like, hey, maybe I could use these skills to investigate myself to see if I can find any answers. Yeah. Long story short, I found my biological family and they date back to 1842 on Lord Howe Island. And so I went overnight from having my only blood relative that I know of being my daughter to literally being related to two thirds of Lord Howe Island's population of 400 by blood and the other third by marriage. Um, I found my mother and my two identical twin brothers who are 18 months younger, full wow. <laughs> brothers. Yeah. Um, so it was a great outcome and we're all terrific. We get on terrifically, but my great grand uncle fled Lord Howe Island in 1882 after a dispute with his parents, came to Sydney, worked on the ferries, went to England, joined the White Star Line, was the boson on the Adriatic, was the boson on the Olympic, and then was the boson on the Titanic. And he went down with the ship in April of 1912. And I've done a podcast about him. Um, he saved a lot of lives by getting people into lifeboats and so forth. Um, so yeah, I think his story is fascinating. I would love to actually be able to, I don't know, meet, he's the sort of person if I could, you, you have that dinner party conversation, who would you invite yeah. him? Cause I just love to know what his life was like and also what those, you know, terrible three hours were like as, you know, the Titanic went down. Yeah. And, and you know, you his connection to me as a, you know, a, a blood relative uh, is just mind blowing because, you know, I had no idea of this, but I also think, you know, it's such a, one of the most well-known stories of modern history and, you know, an Australian was right there in the thick of it, pretty much unknown by everybody. I think that's a great answer. That, <laughs> and it just like, even for people who are listening that when you, if you were get the same question as well, it really should be someone who's got a closer connection to you. Hey, it shouldn't be like, oh, you know, it's this politician that I never met or this sports star who would have had nothing to do with me. It's like I was listening to, I'm just trying to remember, Nurse Savage. I was listening to that podcast today oh, yes. when I was mowing the lawn, just getting some more ideas about, you know, what are we going to talk about? And saying that she and her family was from Corindai, which is where I teach, and then ah. was working in the birthing hospital at Tamworth Base where I live. Oh, so I was go. originally just like, I've never heard of this person before. And it's like this, it's one of your less obscure stories as well. Like this war crime that was committed with the sinking of the centaur and all this sort of stuff. And now I'm like, I've got to go back and teach the kids about this when we do World War II. Here's yes. someone from Corinda. Here's someone from where we are. And she went through this whole ordeal and, yeah, it was yeah. 
Shoes are amazing. Shoes amazing. I mean, and yeah, stories like that are just a terrific way of getting you know people into the sort of larger details. You know, yeah, the fact that this ship was you know, a war crime was committed. You know, just off the coast of you know Australia in 1943, and this woman survived it, and then you know lived for another 40 years as this you know champion. Um, yeah, I think I think people like that need to be remembered as much as you know your your Don Bradmans and and the rest of them. Absolutely. Okay, last one. What is an episode, a book or production that you've done that you're particularly proud of? Is it the one that you're working on that you got your draft at the moment that you would like people to be on the lookout for? Is it something else that you're like, yeah, go have a look? look. uh, It's the podcast episodes in the books are sort of like children, you know, you love them all equally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. To some extent. (laughs) Yeah. Look, uh, just as a as a totally kind of out there thing, I would say I'm particularly proud of a podcast um, that I did recently, and it was about a group called Tiny Town. Now, Tiny Town was a troupe of little people performers, um, and they toured Australia in 1911, 1912. And these guys were, you know, acrobats, comedians, singers, dancers, contortionists, all the rest of it. And they toured all over Australia. They did something like 700 shows in about 15 months. You know, we're talking six days a week, two shows a day. You know, all of the major cities, most of the big regional centres, they went to New Zealand and they were absolutely beloved. I mean, I've calculated that. Uh, probably about one in five Australians at the time actually saw them um, perform. And like, to me, this is just like, you know, it's completely forgotten. Um, They had like their own newspaper called the Tiny Town Times, which is the smallest newspaper in the world. You know, it could (laughs) fit into your hand. Yeah. And uh, what I was expecting was, you know, the, um, the newspapers to be making all sorts of fun of them at the time. And, you know, while they certainly use the M word, which is offensive today, overall, like almost to a fault, the newspapers were hugely supportive of these people. They thought they were great. They thought they were exotic. They thought they were beautiful. They thought they were just absolutely fascinating. Um, And the guy who was the sort of main uh, attraction was this um, little man named Hayata Hasid. And he had been, you know, in a harem in Turkey. He'd been a star in England and America. And he was called the mayor of Tiny Town. And they'd have these elections, you know, regularly that everyone could vote in who came to the show. And he was, you know, repeatedly elected as the mayor of Tiny Town. And then a couple of years later, he was, after the war started, because he was Turkish, he was, you know, dobbed in by his showman boss as an enemy alien. And I found these archives in the National Archives of Australia. I had them digitized. You can do this. It costs you know, 30 or $40 to have these files digitized. I had this, you know, 40-page file, sorry, 30-page file about this prosecution of Hayata Hesid by a guy who was one of Australia's first aviators and actually has a claim to being the first man to ever have uh got a plane up into the air in Australia a day before yeah. Harry Houdini. And this was the guy who was, you know, had dobbed in his worker, Hayati, the little man performer, as being a spy. Yeah. You've got these documents, top secret, from Tiny Town. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> I absolutely love that story. Uh, and yeah. I did a four-part episode on it. And it's just, you know, 
just a completely different world. Um, and otherwise, you know, stoked to see there were hundreds of articles um, in Australia and international newspapers about this guy and about this court case, these cases with this promoter that ended up, you know, with, you know, this ineff- inoffensive little dude who was, you know, a popular hero all across Australia sort of having to fight for his rights in court and, you know, with the military establishment. And, you know, I was glad to see that the military intelligence actually, military intelligence officers actually rejected the claims that this guy was in any way, you know, a spy or an enemy agent. So, you know, military intelligence did live up to its name for once. Yeah. Well, well, that is good. I'm going to have to go and listen <laughs> to that one myself. You, you've, you've got me. You plugged it really well. Excellent. Yeah. All right. That um, one's called that one's called the Mayor of Tiny Town versus yep. Australia's shiftiest showman. America's shiftiest showman, which was the aviator. So, so, you, so, you were sorry, talking about. I've got dogs in the background. Are you going to edit this a bit? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You're right. The mayor, it's called the Mayor of Tiny Town versus Australia's shiftiest showman. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right. Excellent. Um, one last thing I might say is that. Just a, also a bit of a plug to a couple of the sources that you've been talking about, just because it's been brought to my attention. You've been saying, you know, Trove's an excellent resource and like get onto there and find some information that you won't find just by straight up Googling. Um, I'm pretty sure it's under threat at the moment for funding. Isn't, is that correct? Do you know, you yeah. use it way more than I do. Um, yeah, is that used- the case? I use Trove probably four or five hours a day most days. Um, and Trove, its funding has not been continued past July of this year. Uh, without continued funding, it won't operate anymore. And that would be an absolute travesty. Uh, there are encouraging signs from the federal government that they will actually be continuing the funding, but it's not a done deal yet. So uh, there's a petition at change.org that everyone should sign. And if you have the time, there's also a link at change, the petition at change.org. Uh, there's a, a link there to um, how, how you can write to your local federal MP to actually ask that, you know, they take this seriously because, you know, this is literally used by every historian in Australia all the time. And this is the way that we see what Australians were thinking at the time, you know, it's invaluable for family historians as well. Um, and yeah, to lose it would be an absolute travesty. You know, we could spend, you know, we the, the amount we spend on about one meter of a, a nuclear powered submarine would fund Trove for the next hundred years. And that's exactly what we should be doing. Yeah. And we don't even know how we're building those nuclear submarines anyway at the moment. <laughs> but that's I'm definitely going to exactly put, right. definitely going to put a link for, that petition in the show notes. So if you're listening, like forget about subscribing, forget about rating and all that sort of stuff. If you're going to do something and you care about what we're listening to, what Michael's doing, what I'm doing, get on that link and go and support Trove, write your member, all that sort of stuff. So we can keep giving you some great content. Absolutely. hundred percent. I think we might leave it there, mate. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You have a lovely day. And uh, cheers, cheers for having me on. I hope everyone enjoys uh, their studies of history in the HSC. Radio. Thank you, listener, for listening to the Modern History HSC podcast. I'm Blake Hamilton, and we'll see you again next time.